Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Fuds on Film podcast, the internet's most fungible podcast. I'm Scott Morris, and I'm joined today by Drew Tavendale. It is definitely not about mushrooms, right? This whole fungible thing. Definitely not. <laughs> I'm very disappointed by this. Um, also, hello. Yes. It's a real mushroom guy to be with. <laughs> yeah, hello. And as another founding member of the European Super League of Podcasts, we're here to talk about, well, a couple of films, I suppose. So shall we do that then? Let's start with Judas and the Black Messiah. Drew, what's that all about? Well, an important thing to know about the Judas and the Black Messiah is in whose view Daniel Kaluuya's Fred Hampton, leader of the Illinois branch of the Black Panther Party in the mid-1960s, was messianic. And it's not the members of his party. No, that's the view of the noted, sane, rational and entirely colourblind J. Edgar Hoover, who's typical, calm, rational and totally not frothing at the brain reasoning, went something along the lines of these uppity blacks will murder us in our beds and destroy our fine white country. (laughs) Hoover, played here by Martin Sheen in facial prosthetics for some reason... (laughs) <laughs> Sheen looks perhaps a little like the FBI's douche canoe in chief, but mostly looks like Martin Sheen with a silly nose. Uh, something that's particularly weird when every other actor playing a real character has gone for hair is quite like them. Uh, but anyway, yes, um, Hoover has convinced himself that the Black Panther Party is the greatest domestic threat to the USA. And to just look at them trying to educate and motivate a politically suppressed populace and also feed hungry children, the bastards, uh, and wants them stopped. Key to this plan are informants, and one of these, the Judas of the title, is Lakeith Stanfield's Bill O'Neill, a young man caught impersonating an FBI agent as a ruse to steal a car. Real FBI agent Roy Mitchell, Jesse Plemons, gives O'Neill two choices go undercover as an informant in the Black Panther Party, or go to prison. Not seeing this as much of a choice, O'Neill infiltrates the party, eventually rising to head of security for the Illinois chapter, putting him in close, trusted proximity to Hampton, something which will lead to Hampton's murder, though of course they claimed otherwise, by the Chicago police and the FBI. This being based on history, the story is not the hook here, but the personalities, principally Fred Hampton. The fiery young communist was a mere 21 years old when he was definitely not assassinated by the state. But in Kaluuya's hands, and those as writers Shaka King and Will Berson, he seems wise beyond those years. And not just because is 32. I'm going to con- um, <laughs> criticise that from one direction. I need to be consistent and do it from the other. He's <laughs> too old. Um, thankfully, this goes far beyond speeches, which are there, of course, because films love speeches. Well, understandably so. But also in quieter moments, like those between Hampton and his fiancée, Deborah, Dominic Fishback, the film leavens Hampton's kill-the-pigs rhetoric with scenes of him as a gentle, shy and poetic soul. And rather than seeming dissonant, this paints a portrait of a believable, complex and perhaps conflicted character. Less successfully portrayed is the other half of the film's title, as... I never quite bought Lakeith Stanfield in his role. Certainly his unease in many situations is well conveyed by Stanfield's expressive face and occasionally a suggested inner turmoil, but for the most part he so convincingly looks shifty, ill at ease and ready to flee that 
for all his quick-wittedness and talking his way out of dangerous situations, it's actually very hard to believe any character in the film would be okay with him being in charge of security and Hamilton's personal <laughs> safety. We should totally put the dodgy-looking guy who always looks like he's hiding something in charge of security, right? <laughs> the bigger problem, though, is that Bill O'Neill, in this film at least, is a, sci- is a cipher. And that's an issue with the script. We never get to know what he really thinks or believes. Whether Hampton's polemic and rhetoric have any effect on him. Whether he acted through fear, self-interest or something else. And script deficiencies also make it hard to buy O'Neill's being close enough to or trusted enough by Hampton to make the Judas reference really work. The script also has a sufficiency of scenes within the FBI, almost all of which could have been cut to the film's benefit, especially the one in which the film stops dead to allow Hoover to be extra racist. <laughs> for all that, Judas and the Black Messiah is still quite a compelling watch and worth viewing for Kaluuya alone, if nothing else. And it's also a much more successful look at 1960s civil rights and freedom of speech movement in Chicago than last year's The Trial of the Chicago 7. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I agree. I, I, I maybe liked it a bit more uh, than you did, but that's probably because I didn't need to write up any notes and analyse it in any particular yes, detail. I, I found myself um, liking yeah. it a bit less when I started writing it. To be honest, like, yeah, <laughs> I, like Lakeith Stanfield's not that great, and the more I wrote about it, it's like the less I liked his performance, and that was my bigger problem. But sorry, I haven't interrupted yeah. you. Yeah, I, I don't know how much of that's um, like bottlerising. Uh, he needs to be shifty because the role requires him to be shifty, so mm-hmm. that's why he looks shifty. Uh, yeah, I, I can kind of see where that's coming from. Um, yeah, um, but. but, but I, I was impressed by this film mainly because it's uh, the Daniel Kaluuya show and he's really, really, really good in this film. Um, and the supporting acts, I think, more or less carry their weight. Um, guys like Jesse Plemons and um, Martin Sheen's an odd one. <laughs> I don't know, don't know what they were playing out with that one. That, that seemed weird. It's like, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know quite what the, uh, the art direction for that was. It didn't seem particularly necessary. Um, we're used to the concept of actors. I don't, yeah. um, and it's the only person in the film. That's the weird thing. Like, you look at Lakeith Sanfield, <laughs> yeah. he's got largely the same facial hair as a Bill O'Neill, but I mean, his facial hair's not that distinctive. Unless you've got like a, yeah. like a ZZ Top beard or something like that, you know. Um, and... <laughs> Daniel Kaluuya looks exactly like Daniel Kaluuya. <laughs> and yeah. um, his girlfriend has kind of vaguely the same hair, but it's also hair that like Aretha Franklin had in that era. It wasn't yeah. particularly distinctive. So <laughs> why does Martin Sheen have all the makeup on? <laughs> yeah, and I mean, it's okay. I understand it's a film. <laughs> I, I know you've not got the actual people into... Uh, yeah, a, a very peculiar choice um, and somewhat distracting. And... Which is a bit of a shame because the rest of the film, um, certainly the central stories, uh, I, I don't know. It's one of the things. It's important to know that this happened. I think, uh, particularly in America, uh, the, the problem is that it's not like it's some like hidden bit of history that no one knows about, and it's not something that's you know completely been solved and we need to just remember that it happened in the past to prevent it from going on go, going on currently. Um, as you will notice by <laughs> any number of headlines across America, this kind of thing is still happening daily. Um, and uh, it, it almost feels a little bit depressing because basically it's just reminding you of the much worse actual things that are happening right now yep. and still haven't been solved and that's probably the biggest downer of the whole experience um, uh, the, the kind of reminding you that no, this isn't this isn't just some real life event that happened in the dim and distant past that we've all learned and moved on from but no it's something that is still sadly more or less happening now um, depending on how you want to frame it but yes <laughs> It's 
relevance to a modern day audience is sadly all too depressingly real. And for that reason alone, it's uh, it's certainly worth a look in. Um, and frankly, the the fact that it's such a powerhouse performance by Clue makes it a gives it a bonus uh, edge to it. Uh, yes, it's it's an enjoyable film to watch. It's certainly really engaging, um, really captivating watch, and a, a tremendous central performance. So. Can't say much fairer than that. Um, certainly recommended from this end of the podcast spectrum. Yeah, I, I just I wanted to be something a bit more. I, I think balance is probably what I want from it because Bill O'Neill is he's barely a character. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I mean, I don't think Lakeith Stan feels bad in it, but he's not great either. But and I really don't think the issues him. Uh, I think there's so little in the script for that character. There's so little for him to work with. I think the problem with the framing of the film is they've thought of a great idea for a title, and it's a great title. Yeah, yeah. But it's actually not the most interesting thing about the film. I mean, basically, the interesting thing about the film is Fred Hampton. It should be called Fred Hampton. <laughs> he was killed by the FBI. This was a bad thing. You know. It, it, Fred Hampton is clearly, by far and away, the most interesting thing that happened as well. He's, he's all the interesting scenes are about him, and yeah, was just, yeah, the character just doesn't have enough weight to really warrant being the other part of a two-hander. He's by far and away the least interesting aspect of the film, which is sad because yeah, he's focused on it a lot. And I don't think it's uh, the actor's fault. It's just a just an underwritten role, and I don't yeah. know how. Which is, I don't know if I want it to be more written. Um, I don't know how far in the way that would deviate from reality, but I mean, it's just just not the most interesting thing to focus about in this time frame. So, see, I think there must yeah. be something interesting in reality because I mean, I haven't looked much into Bill O'Neill, but the way the little interview clips of the real guy are added to the film, it kind of feels like well, this, this, yeah. this guy's a pariah, and probably yeah. rightly so, but. The fact they even used those real interviews, and that's a, a reasonably well known, best I can gather, so that's a reasonably well known interview. The, the Eyes and the Prize 2, the, yeah. the program's called. And so it suggests to me that there is something interesting in there. I mean, particularly after he, well, he killed himself the night after that interview went out, or I believe that was the case. Um, yeah. So, yeah, um, plainly something there. Yeah, so we've got a tortured soul, and like that could be really interesting uh, to, to see like whether he just just felt like with the the pressure coming from Roy Mitchell, who for some reason yeah. he, um, the real Bill O'Neill claimed he looked up to. Um, <laughs> uh, who knows? But um, whether um, there was a lot of pressure coming from him and he just couldn't do anything, or I mean, maybe he just didn't like Fred Hamdor, didn't like his politics and, or something, you know, or maybe he yeah. did but had to hide in. Like, well, there's so many interesting things, there's some questions that could be asked and the film doesn't really seem interesting to any of them. It's like, here's this guy who's going to betray him, but we'll, we'll base everything on the interesting guy who's going to be betrayed, but the betrayer mm-hmm. should be just as interesting as well. Uh, but again, again, uh, as you said, Scott, like, yeah, if you're going to do that, though, and not actually have Judas be important, why is it the first name in the title? Yeah. Why, yeah. why not just call it the Black Messiah or something? Um, um, Fred Hampton <laughs> yeah. was not the first person to whom that actual name, or at least the, the sense of that name was applied by that ass ha hoover but yeah, why call it that when like the judas part of it is is considerably less than half despite seemingly having top billing yeah yeah it, it seems strange to me so yeah as i said it, it's absolutely worth watching for daniel kaloya's performance alone he's fantastic it just the lack of balance in the way the characters play out it bothers me quite a lot um i find that a frustration yeah 
I think you're right. There's probably a lot of um, internal life going along, uh, going in along inside the Judas's character that I guess just never came out. I, I think he was like very guarded about everything, for, probably rightly so, and just never really gave a lot of insight to that in, during his life. I mean, that interview apparently was the the kind of the closest he got to unburdening himself, and it wasn't all that. Um, explicative of what he was thinking at the time mm-hmm. or anything like that. So whether whether they just didn't want to put words into the mouth, I don't know, out of respect or or whatever. Um yeah, the, maybe some amount of dramatization in that would not have gone amiss. Um <laughs> it, it might have um, made a bit of uh, sense, at least dramatically, whether or not it would uh, apply true to reality, I'm not sure. But yeah. Yeah. Certainly in terms of it being a dramatic out uh, work of art, it it underplays it for mm-hmm. reasons that I'm not entirely sure of, and uh, yeah, it doesn't quite uh, serve the purpose of the film as a dramatic work, if not a kind of more documentarian thing. Yeah, and again, I just left with the question of why Martin um, Sheen had that makeup. <laughs> yes, no, I think maybe it's because uh, there's a. I largely think it's been forgotten now, and I hope so because it's appalling. But there's a film from almost two decades ago now called The Hours. Um, in which Nicole <laughs> yes. Kidman got an Oscar because of her prosthetic nose. Well, I assume it's that because everything else about the film, especially performance, <laughs> is appalling. Um, so maybe Martin Sheen was hoping he could get a wee supporting actor Oscar nod for his prosthetic nose. nose. <laughs> so I'm pinning my reasoning on. Because <laughs> nothing else makes a lick of sense. <laughs> yeah, and for such a minor role as well. Tell me it's called J. Edgar Hoover, I'll understand who that is. Okay. Uh, yeah. But yeah, actually, Hoover doesn't need to be in the film at all, which is the strangest part of it. Yeah. And he did seem to be playing Hoover in exactly the same way that he played his role in Mass Effect. <laughs> um, it's exactly the same vocal inclination. So I don't know if he maybe he based his role in Mass Effect off J. Edgar Hoover. I don't know. But yes, very similar. The elusive man, isn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah. That was in my mind earlier. Actually, too, but that's a much more interesting role. He actually had anything to do in that um, game, well, <laughs> but not this film, rather. Yeah, uh, definitely interesting, and it's much better than uh, it's an obvious comparison, but because they're in the same city and the same era as well. But then the trial of Chicago Seven, yeah. because you know stuff that happened in this film more happened. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> As opposed to um, being rewritten so Aaron Sorkin can have some of the dialogue he likes to write. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. Right, we only have two films for this episode and they're um, very, very similar types of films. Um, Absolutely. Th- there's th- there's nothing to um, separate them at all here. Scott, there's like this massive monkey and an angry iguana. <laughs> and they fight. Yes, which- Clearly, it's the same metaphor for uh, race struggles. Uh, yes, uh, we're talking, of course, about Godzilla vs. Kong, uh, another film where it would seem that the title pretty much describes the content of the film adequately enough. Certainly, that's the marquee attraction of it, although, unfortunately, Godzilla vs. Kong versus a bunch of nonsense is a more correctively descriptive title. Uh, but anyway, if you need further description of the nonsense elements, here you go. Large Monkey Kong is being held in a secured containment facility by generic chaotic neutral science corp monarch and the film instantly loses me by not shortening Kong containment to Kongtainment. <laughs> do I have to do everything around here? Jeez. I, I, see, I never even noticed that. I was just more hung up on why King Kong was in the Truman Show. <laughs> it, was the, it was the Truman Show dome for whatever reason. 
yes. Uh, but, of course, he's being held because if a large lizard Godzilla detected him, there would be a Barney to establish who is the Alpha Titan. Now, some of you might be asking why Godzilla was happy enough to let Kong chill on Skull Island, but not anywhere else, and if so, why would Monarch risk removing Kong from Skull Island? And I say to you, kiddo, if you're going to pick plot holes in a film called Godzilla vs. Kong, you're in for a long night, and maybe you ought to watch a film that's more based on established science, like The Core. (laughs) 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 You'd get a kick out of that one. (laughs) Yeah, that's scary, Scott. That the, the idea of a, a film in which the great idea is to bump start the Earth because it stopped spinning is um, more scientifically cromulent than this nonsense. <laughs> it's pretty much. <laughs> um, meanwhile, lawful evil science corp Apex Cybernetics are up to something no good, according to Brian Tyree Henry's swivel-eyed conspiracy theorist Bernie Hayes. A mystery which does indeed mysteriously attract the attention of Godzilla, who does a bit of his patented stomping of their American facility. Millie Bobby Brown's Madison Russell can't bring herself to accept Godzilla's heel turn and seeks, alongside Bernie, an explanation for this behaviour. Turns out it's Mechagodzilla, telepathically controlled, using reanimated tissue of General Zod. Sorry, Ghidorah. Um, error in my notes there. Uh, further, meanwhile, Apex have convinced Monarch to let them borrow Kong for an outing to the Hollow Earth in their alternate gravity shuttlecraft for some reason. Something to do with energy signatures to wirelessly recharge Mechagodzilla, I think. But the important thing it says here is that Godzilla finds a magic axe to fight a lizard with. <laughs> am I on drugs? Was this real? Where am I? Who is the president? Axe in hand, Kong then fights Godzilla against the backdrop of Hong Kong skyscrapers with their RGB lighting set to vaporwave until they realise that both their mother's names were Martha and team up to fight Mechagodzilla, who, wouldn't you know it, has gone evil. I am as surprised as you are. Now, look, I am not yet so destroyed by cynicism that I cannot appreciate a solid CG showreel of action nonsense. And there's about half an hour of solid CG thumpy battles and ludicrous destruction that appeals to me on a very base level. Unfortunately, this is a nigh-on two-hour film and is diluted heavily with incoherent techno-drivel spouted off by characters ultimately so inconsequential I've not even mentioned them in the recap, despite them having more screen time than the headline attractions. Now, I entirely understand this from a production and budgetary standpoint. It's a lot cheaper per inch of film to animate Kyle Chandler than King Kong, but with respect to all involved, no one's signing up to see this film on the basis of Alexander Skarsgård versus Rebecca Hall. It's Godzilla versus Kong, but contains altogether too little of that and too much of Brian Tyree Henry's teeth-grindingly irritating supposed comic relief. I am, by this point, old enough and ugly enough to have seen much worse films attempting similar spectacle, but after the enjoyable Godzilla King of the Monsters, I had hoped that this franchise had hit its stride. This is a definite stumble, if not a complete faceplant. I'm not angry, I'm just disappointed. This is appalling garbage and I hated every moment of it. <laughs> well, maybe not every, but honestly quite close to it. Yeah, it's it's nonsense of the worst variety. It's and I know you're always in dangerous ground or like um, thankless ground that you start trying to pick holes in this, but it's just they're just like There's so many holes. Bunch of it's crap. all holes. It's, it's, it's holes all the way down, Scott. Uh, it's, yeah. it's like the the hollow earth we mentioned a couple of it's in Kong Skull and it's in King of the Monsters at least, but didn't have to do it. That's just because um, Bradley Whitford is a conspiracy theorist and he's believing in everything. You didn't have to make yeah. this one real. And and I know it's, like, it's all nonsense, but it's like you know, this like right here's our idea. There were these um, giant creatures in this 
planets passed, they were dormant, they woke up. Okay. That kind of works. Basic concept here. Mm. Um, science fiction monster movie. Okay. But no, no. The Hollow Earth as well. Right. Um, why is there sunshine in the middle of the planet? No, no. Because. Um, be- yeah, because. Because of the. Because of the inverse sun. Yeah. Um, right. <laughs> um, and the Earth's a sphere, but the pl- the gravity boundary appears to be a plane. So the one. No, okay. No, no, I'm, I'm thinking. I'm thinking at all. I'm not thinking too hard about it. I'm thinking at all. There's my problem. Hmm. And it's just nobody's character motivations make sense. All the humans are, as they always are in these films, impossibly dull. Yeah. And also, um, Millie Bobby Brown's character's back, despite having been in the film before a willing member of a murderous terrorist group. We're supposed to forget that now? Okay. <laughs> She's rubbish. Kyle Chandler's even t- more terrible in this than he was in the last one, but fortunately he's in it 10% less, or, a t- or rather a tenth of it. So that's yeah. good, I guess. Um, it's just it's rubbish, and I'm so fed up with these types of films. I'm so bored of destruction. And had actually, I mean, there are moments in the film that look good, at least. Um, yeah, look, in its defence, there are moments of the series, they're kind of flaky bit here and there, but for something that is not actually insanely budgeted by the standards of this sort of thing, it looks great uh, for, for like 90% of the time. Some of the CG is really, really good. And I, that's what I'm saying. On some level, I can at moments appreciate it just on that level it's a good show reel yeah um but it's a bad film yeah it's, it's a terrible film uh and yeah like some of the some of the it's like it's some of the more simple shots that i really liked actually there's a a couple of shots of like godzilla just almost staring to the camera and in 4k it looks incredible. Yeah. Like the, the really appreciating the detail of this creation, and some of the fighting between Kong and Godzilla and Mechagodzilla eventually, um, mm-hmm. I'm quite enjoying. But it's yeah. and like it's. But what I was meaning about some bits that I like, Scott, it's not in terms of the quality. It's just like it's the style because the Hong mm. Kong fight looks really good. Yeah. Right, that's visually distinctive. You've got the skyscrapers with all the neon around them, uh, and it looks good. But it's. It's the destruction stuff. It just bores me. Uh, I mean, that's been the case for years and years now. But all the scene, lots and lots of buildings being destroyed. It's dull. It's so uninteresting. I'll probably watch the characters beat each other up, but like, oh, there's another building being destroyed. And I rewatched King of the Monsters a couple of days before this, and I've watched King Kong Skull Island again as well. Mm. And in particular, in well, there are no buildings in Skull Island, so obviously it's only in King of the Monsters, but this mm. is the same problem as that, in that when the buildings are being destroyed, it's like, yeah, okay, I've seen buildings being destroyed for, well, let's like go back to say Independence Day, really. It feels like forever, really yes. Starts, <laughs> almost 20 years. It's very much lost its novelty. It's not interesting. Mm-hmm. And it's actually less interesting because I don't think the buildings look like they're getting destroyed in any way convincingly. They all they fall apart far too uniformly, far too easily. Um, yeah. King of the Monsters was worse for it than this, but there's still a lot of this. Like somebody will smash into a building, the whole building will fall apart like it's made of Lego. Lots of uniform sized bits appear. And like, well, they convinced the building, but mm-hmm. I'm, just, I'm just weary of it. Um, it's not inventive. Like we're going to destroy yeah. stuff. Uh, I've not seen that much, you know, today. But you know, yesterday <laughs> I watched a film with it, and you know. Uh, 
Yeah, I've not watched it in a while, but what I always remember liking about King of the Monsters was the not not the destruction, but it was the, it was the, the shots where it was all like really weird atmospheric effects going on. It was like fighting through the middle of a fog bank where you could only see half of it going on. Although I thought that all worked on a kind of more artistic level um, in terms of fighting, rather than just seeing another skyscraper getting destroyed again, um, which I was tired of when I played it in Rampage on the Spectrum. Um, <laughs> yeah, that actually I think works a bit less now. Watch the kind of monsters, but the, the other thing, right? Um, it's this is definitely a film that I think you need to see in a cinema because watching this on a, yeah. a five meter high, a three meter, five meter high um, cinema screen compared to a television, no matter how big your TV is, no, it's it's not the same. And I was acutely aware of that going back to watch King of the Monsters on the much yeah. smaller scale that is necessity to be watching on a television, it loses so much of its impact. It was remarkable how much less yeah. um, impactful and appealing it was. Um, so it kind of figuratively and literally diminishes the size of the monsters. Um, mm. So they become less special because you're not seeing huge towering creatures on a screen, a huge towering screen. And then yeah. because they're diminished, it shifts the focus to the humans. And oh my God, are the humans boring? Oh, they're, they're awful. And even you've got somebody as good as Charles Dance, now he's appalling in King of the Monsters because everybody <laughs> is, but at least he's not as boring as Kyle Chandler and his family. Uh, yeah. But I think Godzilla versus Kong has that same problem. It's like when you're watching the TV, it's definitely mm. losing a lot of the impact. You For a film like this, you want ridiculously loud cinema um, surround sound. Mm-hmm. Deafening you and like buildings have been smashed by because Godzilla's just uppercutted um, <laughs> Kong with yeah. his tail or something like that, and so it brings too much focus to humans who are universally terrible in these films. Even without Evan Taylor Johnson, they're boring is um, a very yeah. boring thing, <laughs> uh, and yeah, the whole story is nonsense. The motivations are nonsense. Alexander Skarsgård, well, that's that may be the most boring character I've seen in the film in a good long while. Oh yeah, yeah. And then it's, again, I've said before, I am incapable of not thinking about things. But it's like nobody in this film thought about anything. It was like written by a seven-year-old. Um, <laughs> it's it's a lot of and then what happened was yeah yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, Jay from Red Letter Media on Half in the Bag when he was talking about this, he put it quite well. And not for the first time this podcast, I'm I'm pinching a line from him, but I, I thought he put it quite well. It's like, the whole film feels like a child smashing their two toys together. Yeah, <laughs> um, and it, honestly, it never rises above that. There is something in, in, in some of the, the Godzilla films in the past and stuff. There's a there's a schlocky quality to them. Okay, that they're, they're they're ridiculous films, and they're just like men in rubber suits, you know, pushing each other over and with uh, cardboard buildings and stuff. But that schlockiness you can let go when it's a film that only cost a couple million dollars. You don't get mm. to have schlocky when you cost two hundred million. It's like, no, mm-hmm. schlocking, low budget go together, schlocking $200 million, no, make it better. It's, it's not acceptable. Uh, yeah. 
No. And I agree, although apparently this has been successful. I, d- I don't know how. I don't know what the, the metric for success is these days, given that we're still, everyone's more or less locked down. But yeah. apparently this is, people are happy enough, seemingly, with the, the financial returns in this. I I don't understand quite how. Yeah, well, but, well, it's up to $400 million <laughs> in the cinema. So you know, people are going by there. But although you, yeah. you want to be careful. I'll continue to, you know, you have another wrong Wikipedia, but it's the, um, the most successful launch item in HBO Max's history. Which is a particularly stupid line, given that felt that service isn't even a year old yet. Yeah. So, you know, but, um, yeah, it's been successful, and I'm kind of wondering why. It's just pent up mm. demand, perhaps. Yeah, because it's it's yeah. just so dull. And as uh, I remember now, where I was going with my point about the schlock and my ability to or inability to not think about things, but some of it's so stupid. Like the after credit scene, Godzilla King of the Monsters was the reveal that somebody had got a hold of one of King Ghidira's heads, right? That's become the basis for Mechagodzilla. But in this film, in Godzilla vs. Kong, they haven't used um, Ghidira's brain or anything, but no, um, his skull with some RGB lighting coming out of it. Yeah. that That's how... That, no, 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 you're a stupid film and I don't like you. <laughs> That bit is talking distinctly about telepathy. Maybe <laughs> telepathy lives in bones rather than brains. Who knows? No one knows because it's nonsense, as is everything else in the film. So uh, I, I, I try not to expend too many cycles on it in my brain. I think, I think you know what, actually, going back to the thought about spectacle, I mean, it's, uh, it's entirely valid. It's the reason I, although I loved um, Mad Max Fury Road, I've not seen it since the cinema because I know... I'm going to watch it again on a smaller screen, and it's not going to be as good because it's not it's not going to have the same kind of sense of spectacle, and that's something that relies on scale yeah, much well. less than this does. Um, the, the only saving grace, weirdly enough, that um, I think maybe this film had was that I now have a pair of headphones that have haptic feedback, so it gives me a nice bit of um, deep bass shaking of the head when that happens, <laughs> which kind of does actually make a lot of difference in these kind of big, punchy uh, punchy monster fight films, but it's not enough. It's certainly not enough to save the I film, mean, and it's certainly enough to spend a uh, hundred and whatever quid it is for a pair of Razor Nari, Nari headphones. Um, no, yeah. The sound design's good, and I enjoyed parts of that uh, because I've got a, a 5.1 setup. Mm. Uh, my receiver actually is a, a Dolby Atmos receiver, but I really can't be bothered trying to fit speakers to my ceiling. That seems like way too much hassle. I'd rather, I'm just waiting <laughs> to get back to a cinema. Yeah, But, you know, with proper 5.1 and a, a good subwoofer and stuff, I mean, it sounds good. Mm. So I still get some of the benefit of the sound, but it's just it's not the same because the what you really want is to be getting shaken in your seat by the sound, which you can't do yeah. if you have neighbours, which I do. So, um, <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's this is an event film. This is, um, I mean, I, like, I prefer to see anything in a cinema. I love cinema. I love the experience, you know, as long as there aren't just, you know, jackasses in the cinema with you, which is fortunately yeah, where I live. Steel popcorn, I, I don't, sticky Sticky floors, yeah, I get where yeah. I live. But fortunately, the, <laughs> the jackasses aren't so much of a problem around where I live. But, um, <laughs> But yeah, this is a film made for being seen on a huge screen um, with, um, you know, stomach rumbling bass and things. So yeah. it's definitely um, the lesser film for that. But I still don't think that's going to um, cover up for its massive defects because no. the whole thing is just no. arrant nonsense. Yeah, I, I cannot imagine even under ideal <laughs> circumstances with... 
a suitable level of alcohol in, imbued beforehand. I can't imagine this ever getting above. Eh. And if you're watching it, as most of us are, from the comfort of lockdown and then substantially less than ideal conditions it is yeah. just bad yeah. and, <laughs> and just, I probably shouldn't but just to go back to the humans to how terrible that like the, that really annoying character you mentioned the conspiracy theorist podcast host yeah but I think this film doesn't really seem to know what it's saying it's like he's going on and thinks there's like the apex are up to something and also there's a hollow earth but then they also rent that the character bathes in bleach <laughs> and all the kind of the other vaguely MAGA related conspiracy theory stuff and whatever else what other nonsense that is but but he's proved to be right with the Apex thing and the Hollow Earth so what's your message yeah. here precisely I was supposed to believe those things as well because he was right with them or are you just written by a hack I mean, I'm not going to suggest which one I think it is, but, um, you know. <laughs> yes, the error you've made there is assuming there's a message <laughs> in a film called Godzilla vs. Kong. Uh, yeah, but... Yeah, unfortunately, it's, but, the whole thing just bored me. It's um, mm. it's disappointing, too, because... And I, I said, I went back and watched Kong Skull, and I'm still pretty bored by it. I didn't like that much the first time. It was, it was okay at best, Um King of the Monsters, like considerable less now, and I think because of the lack of spectacle. But mm. having liked those somewhat, and the fact that one of the screenwriters wrote, or at least worked in the screenplay for Thor Ragnarok, which is amazing. Yeah. I, oh, there's so much. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh dear. Oh. Whoops. Oh. <laughs> Do you know what this film needed, Scott? Mecha Streisand. <laughs> And Sydney Potty. Yeah. <laughs> and Leonard Moulton. <laughs> mostly Sydney Potty and Barb uh, uh, Mecca Streisand. Yep. <laughs> right. Uh, that will wrap us up for this podcast. If you would like to get in touch with us uh, for any of the reasons discussed here or anything else, then do so at podcast at fudsonfilm.com or through the old Twitters at uh, fudsonfilm. And until next time, I will bid you adieu, and I'm sure that Drew will do too. I'll feed us in. <laughs> <laughs>